Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to the Change Your POV Podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing set correctly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. The weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing is not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey folks, this is Dwayne France, your host of Headspace and Timing. Uh, really interested today to talk to international guest, uh, and I'll have him uh, introduce himself here in a minute. Matt, it's really great to, to have you on the podcast. And uh, Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if you would, real quick, uh, just kind of introduce uh, yourself to the audience. Well, I'm a British journalist. Um I have spent the last four years really focused on the subject of veteran uh, mental health and the kind of issues that many soldiers face when they return from deployment. Um, I, I wrote this book uh, called Aftershock, um, which is about uh, British forces and their experience, particularly with post-traumatic stress, uh, but also all kinds of other psychological injuries. I do a lot of speaking on the topic, uh, a lot of writing, uh, and I'm really hoping that I can, in a sense, share some of the British experience and maybe help to sort of shed light as well on, on what's going on in the States. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in some of our correspondence um, and, and some of the stuff that you'd written that I had seen, I saw a lot of parallels uh, between my work as a mental health counselor and then what you say that you've seen uh, as reported with, uh, with British veterans. So uh, before we get into a lot of that, like you said, you're a reporter. How did yeah. you get into mental health? What, why did this really um, be something that you wrote a book on, essentially? Well, well uh, there's a couple of strands, I think, that came together in this book. Um, I spent 14 years uh, as a correspondent working overseas as news agency uh, and then for the Financial Times. Um, and I suppose my first big experience of, of reporting on conflict uh, was back in 2003 during it was embedded. Um, moving up from great 
uh, to Baghdad and we arrived in Baghdad on, I think, April 9th, the day when those statues of Saddam Hussein started to fall. Um, and then a few years later, I was in Afghanistan um, reporting on the troop surge under the Obama administration, uh, once again embedded with U.S. Marines and Army units. Um, so I'd had a kind of long-standing career interest in the military um, from the point of view of a journalist in the field. Um, but in parallel to that, I've always been very much interested in, in the market. And to be honest with you, I had my own ups and downs as a journalist. I never had post-traumatic stress as such, but I certainly had times where I was kind of burnt out, very depressed, actually, and had to take time out from work. Sure. Um, so I was always interested in kind of finding my own healing, if you like. Um, and actually, it was the publisher that suggested this idea. Uh, she'd heard something on the radio um, some years earlier about the experience of veterans from the Falklands War back in 1982. Right, right. Um, when we sent the task force down to the South Atlantic, the topic interested in doing it. And at first, I, I have to admit, I was still very much immersed in Afghanistan, Pakistan. I wasn't really thinking about British soldiers. But then the idea came to me that actually this would be a really good vehicle to explore that bigger question that all human beings face at some point, which is how, how do we transmute suffering? How, how do we move from dark into light, if you will? Um, and I, I suppose the conversations I started to have with British soldiers who had their own struggles really, really shed light on that for me. And and that's interesting that you're talking about. So you weren't doing a lot of uh, embeds with uh, British soldiers. Um, so you didn't have a lot of uh, interaction with coalition partners when you were in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've noticed when I talk to other uh, soldiers, I think I mentioned it to you, um, is when I talk to Brits, when I talk to uh, Aussies, when I talk to Canadian soldiers, that we tend to have a lot much more in common with the, the coalition service members that we served with over there than those that haven't served. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 an experience time spent on the ground was with U.S. forces. In a way, that was like a passport for me when I was going to approach British veterans to ask them to open up about their experiences. Because obviously, this is a very sensitive area. Sure, and absolutely. You have to find people at the right point in their own journey who can see the value of, of sharing their stories for others' benefit, essentially. But I think it was very helpful that I was able, when I was reaching out to veterans in Britain, to say, look, I have I have been on the ground in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Um, I, in I understand the difference between... a a sergeant and a corporal and a private or a platoon and a battalion. But obviously, spending time embedded with U.S. troops, I very quickly learned my way around that sort of vocabulary again, which was a huge help for me um, when I was starting to sit down and have long conversations um, with British ex-forces. Um, so so in a sense, that was a great preparation for me to undertake the work I'm doing now. And, and it, in a strange way, although I, I, I talked about how I was very interested in this kind of personal transformation that these vet unwittingly myself cast in a role of advocate in a way because I was actually shocked at how bad or how how many gaps there are in the services that we offer or the support that we offer to our veterans as particularly those who are suffering from some sort of psychological injury and and that's one of the things that uh, when when I had seen your editorial and I'm actually gonna uh, put a link to that editorial in our show notes but when I saw that I saw uh, some of the, the similarities to, to what you're saying as far as the gaps that apparently British soldiers are experiencing to the gaps that uh, I see U.S. soldiers and that others in coalition uh, countries experience also. Do you find a kind of universality about this, uh, uh, this post-war mental health thing? Well, I, 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 that's certainly my impression is that there, there's, there's certainly probably more that unites 
uh, troops across coalition countries uh, who are facing these struggles when they return that, that then divides them. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's certainly um, a lot more that unites veterans from all these coalition partners uh, when they're coming home and, and facing the, the um, and I think one of the things that's particularly striking is the gulf, really, that exists between civilians and the military in all, in all of these countries. Certainly in Britain, uh, I know that probably most of my friends would struggle to point on a map to our biggest garrisons. Um, and most people don't know any soldiers. <laughs> or, 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 and and I, for me, it was a real education, actually, visiting parts of Britain that I'd never normally go to, um, northwest of England, the borders of Scotland, parts of where military based. Um, so I think that disconnect um, is a real problem. And, and there's, a, there's a danger in a way, I think, that often veterans feel, and, and, and rightly so, that they're they'll be able to re rekindle a sort of spirit of camaraderie when they're in a group uh, with, with, with other veterans. But of course, we need to bridge the gap between veterans and the rest of society. And I'm hoping that as, as essentially a civilian, I can help play a part in, in doing in, in bridging that divide. And, and I think that's a, a, a huge benefit that you have as far as the experience that you have in country um, and having that be the legitimacy that you provide to be able to talk to uh, British uh, ex-soldiers, um, that that can help. You can be the synergy between that. We experience the same thing here in the U.S., uh, but there are a lot of veterans on one side of the gap and that they don't want to reach out into that gulf uh, as, as far as civilians. Um, and there is a need to, to make that bridge. So uh, I appreciate that that's what you're trying to do. I, yeah, well, I, I, so, sorry, sorry, Dwayne, go ahead. No, I, I, and that's what I, I, I really got that sense from your editorial, um, which is, again, I, I, I picked up the first uh, uh, first time I, I read from you. Uh, you, you made a, a, a story about Dave, and, uh, and Dave's story was a story that, that I've heard from veterans that I work with. I mean, it could have been, I know Dave's, right? You know, I know um, yeah, yeah. U.S. soldiers named Dave. And it, and it was almost exactly what I've seen. And, and it was just so striking to me that the experiences were similar. Yeah. Well, I, I think that there, obviously we have to remember that different, but at the time uh, we, we can see similarities and I think the story of Dave Salt um, who I met in a town in Leamington Spa a town in the south of England um, back in 2014 is really instructive he'd served in Afghanistan in Iraq and done tours before that Bosnia Sierra Leone um, which frankly most people in Britain have long since forgotten right and he had a very a very um, serious case of post-traumatic stress very intense, immersive flashbacks. Um, he'd be shopping tannoy, and that would trigger him right back to feeling like he was in a military base um, in Basra, for example. Um, and he'd been in and out of hospital. He'd been through um, the the biggest mental health charity in Britain, Combat Stress, as it's known. Um, he'd been treated uh, by other charities and by the National Health Service. But no one had the kind of wraparound integrated care that he needed to recover um, and particularly to treat the combat symptoms alcohol 
such a, a vicious combination. Um, and, and as I wrote in the editorial, I, you know, he was found dead in his flat a couple of years after I met him. Like, he died alone. I mean, he'd served almost 20 years in the army, um, but the, the war caught up with him many years later. And, and the fact that he'd had contact with all these services, but none of them had actually been able to save him. I felt was a really damning indictment of our system. And, and like you say, you know many people like Dave in the States, and I certainly have come across many similar stories in for ex-forces in Britain. There's endless charities, and there's a lot of money being spent, but we're still not focused enough on reaching the people with the most acute presentations of, of post-traumatic stress and providing them with the really possibly intense therapy and, and perhaps months and months of inpatient care that they might need to stand a chance of, of recovering. And, and again, I think that's where I see the parallels between a lot of veterans uh, uh, in the U.S. Um, is uh, that there is this intense need and the services are not always there. Again, very similar. Everybody wants to help the veteran, um, you know, for, for, for patriotism, for God and country and things like that. But um, there is that separation, and, and everything does seem very piecemeal. Um, of course, here in the U.S., we have the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is the primary um, resource for some veterans, but not all veterans qualify for those resources. Um, and it's an overwhelmed system. Um, yeah. Not not uh, not wanting to get into you know which is worse, but your your veterans care system. If you could talk a little bit about that for for Britons. Well Yes, well, we don't have any uh, direct equivalent uh, of, of the Department of Veterans Affairs because essentially what happens is when we're of the defense, and there is a network of 16 outpatient clinics um, which are supposed to provide therapy or mental health support for veterans who do come forward. Um, but bear in mind, I mean, stigma is still a big problem. I interviewed the chief chief psychiatrist, essentially, of the Ministry of Defense, um, a Navy surgeon captain, John Sharpley, and he said probably 90% of personnel who have symptoms don't come forward because they're worried about harming their career or their, their, their internal personnel leave. Their uh, responsibility for their care reverts to the National Health Service. Now, obviously, it's a very different system in the UK than it is in the US. We have a free health, uh, a health service that is essentially free at the point of use. You just turn up and you get treated. Um, but the NHS is really playing catch up. It's never really been configured to treat veterans. And they right. are trying to roll out services uh, and they are trying to improve. Um, but I've met many, many cases of, of families um, or individuals who to find help or never found it um, and they they tend to find themselves bouncing between psychiatric wards where they're with all kinds of people with different sorts of mental health problems um, or or back between families who are ever more despairing um, and sometimes ending up in prison cells um, or worse situations so Again, it goes back to that. I think the big gap we have here is that kind of acute care for those veterans who really do have the most serious cases of trauma. It can be very difficult to find the right help. And that's about, about when I when I give talks and so on to really try to get a conversation going about how we can address that. 
Now, and, and as much as um, the in the editorial there was uh, really an indictment, or not even an indictment, but just a, a call for clarity, this is the truth. Yeah. Um, but yeah. you also said in there that, that there was a piece of hope, and you said that while you were um, researching Aftershock, um, that you saw that with the right care, uh, that transformation was possible, even for those, as you say, that are severely damaged. Yeah, I mean, obviously... I. One has to be very cautious because I, I know that for people who are really in the sort of darkest of tunnels, it, 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 you can almost sound glib saying that, you know, things can get better. Right. Um, and I, I'm very I, I'm very much aware that for people who are struggling, um, it, it, it's not. But I'm, I'm well, let, let me rephrase that. Let me let me rephrase what I'm saying. I, I think I'd say, yeah, you know, I know that for people who are really struggling and are really at the bottom of the spiral as i came to see it you know it can be very difficult to believe actually that, that there's a way out um and, and people can get obviously can spend a long time in a very very dark and dangerous place um i suppose the reason why i said that is that i did meet a lot of veterans uh, during my travels all over britain um some of them had tried to take their own lives and really failed but by, by by luck or by fate. Um, but they had, as, as, as years had gone by and as they had eventually found the right support, they had managed to to not only recover, but really, in a sense, live life, um, get in touch with, I, I think, what, what they would perhaps describe as a deeper dimension of the, themselves through that, that journey. Um, a lot of the veterans I spoke to in the first speak about um their injuries psychological injuries went back to the 70s or 80s perhaps and it had taken them 20 or 30 years to make that journey um, and i suppose my goal when writing a book was to sort of distill some of what they'd learned along the way and share it for perhaps veterans from iraq or afghanistan who were just at the start of that um trajectory uh, and maybe shorten the gap between them realizing that they needed to seek help and then finding uh, the kinds of people or organizations. And, and I think that that's the, um, the big thing that, again, is another parallel for us. Obviously, you had the, uh, uh, the Falcons in the, uh, the early 80s. We had Vietnam. Um, and and uh, those of us in this current um, uh, generation of American service members look back to those uh, Vietnam veterans, how long it took for them to finally come to peace, as you say. Uh, and it's interesting that you say your book is not just designed to help those who've never served understand what veterans are experiencing, but it also uh, bridges back to that other side of the gap, trying to bring veterans um, to a stable center place as well. I think I could say uh, to, a, to a man and woman, because there are some women in the book as well, everybody who spoke to me about their experiences did it for the single reason that they wanted to help others. Obviously, I wasn't... Well, I, I was I, I, I wasn't speaking to people necessarily who were in the depths of crisis because obviously that's pretty unethical and it wouldn't really speaking to people through a crisis and come out the other side and at least found a degree of stability, um, even if it was only temporarily in, for some of them. Um, and they wanted to share what they learned. And I, I think that was one of the most inspiring uh, lessons in a way that I learned from researching the book was that it seems to me that it's integral in the journey of recovery that those who do feel like that they've learned or, or gained something through the experience are very eager to share it um, because they know how valuable um, just 
the journey that they've been on. Um, and I, I, I saw the book very much as a team effort. Um, and I was, it was very moving at the launch we had in London. Um, many of the veterans I'd written about um, during the book came along and some of them had traveled from all over the country. One of them was a, a former special forces soldier in the um, special air service, the SAS. And he kind of sees the uh, lectern and <laughs> read out a very moving poem, which I, I mean, I, he's got an unpredictable character. He won't mind me saying that. And I wasn't quite sure what he was going to say, but he, it's different through a TV screen. Uh, and most of the people in the audience would only have ever seen these conflict zones on the television, but he'd certainly been there. Um, so it, uh, what I've tried to do since publishing the book is really to kind of build an informal coalition of veterans, family members, people in the military, in the NHS, uh, National Health Service, in charity, military charities, in the media, who really we can be doing a better job, that there is hope. There's things that if we scale up could really make an all as move. I'm a journalist, but I've also kind of almost accidentally been cast in the role of advocate as well. Um, and I find that that very rewarding. And, and that makes me think in, in the U.S. Um, there's a, a large um, a, a large group of individuals who are starting to recognize a concept of post-traumatic growth versus trost post-traumatic decline, post-traumatic stress that, uh, and we're, we're all familiar with Nietzsche, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Um, and that sounds like that's what you're talking about is through the other side of these um, uh, challenges um, that these uh, British veterans are also finding growth, finding purpose, finding meaning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, 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 that, that, that term post-traumatic growth isn't, isn't a term that's sort of particularly caught on in Britain. And I think and I, I, I suspect you probably share this sentiment. I, I always approach it with some caution because I think there's a danger that for those institutions that would prefer that this problem didn't even exist to kind of say, oh, well, post-traumatic growth, it will all be to suffering psychological injury. And we know that actually for the people going through this, it, it can be absolute living hell and a life or death struggle. Uh, but but at the same time, it, it's true um, that, that for some people I met, they, 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 they did go through remarkable transformations that did deepen their relationship, in a sense, with, 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 with life, with their communities, with their families. Um, uh, e even if it did take many years of struggle, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular veteran, I mid to late 40s now, he served in Northern Ireland again on a, on a, bomb, a bomb squad and in Bosnia. He had a very severe case um, of post-traumatic stress, and he went through a lot of the conventional therapies. He did um, the talking-type therapies, um, the EMDR, the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But for him, it was discovering equine therapy, working with horses, um, which was a huge breakthrough and, and shift. And, and he, he got to a point the severe symptoms that he had been some years earlier. But he wasn't really living. Um, but discovering this work with horses, um, which is far more sophisticated, actually, and, and far more kind of pinned by neurobiology and the sort of body oriented approaches to trauma therapy than I'd realized. But but when he sort of really made this this kind of connection with these horses, he, he, he became, a, in a sense, a different person. Perhaps that he became the person always he was trying to become all along. Um, and he's thriving now in a way that would have been inconceivable found there something that's really, really, that, that they've really responded to. They have moved on. Um, but I think I think it's Ed Tick who wrote the book War on the Soul. And I think there's a line yep. at the end where he says, you know, we can't necessarily heal the wound, 
but we can build more soul. And I think there's real wisdom in that statement. You know, we're not trying to take the trauma away or pretend that it didn't happen, but we can build more soul around it. Right. And I, and I, I get the idea, of course, as you were talking at the very beginning of that, where you say, you know, we, if it's a choice between me growing and me not having gone through trauma, I think I'll not go through trauma. That would be, you know, if I could choose one or the other. Um, <laughs> but then the growth is possible yeah. on the other side. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and I think that's really important to know. Uh, and even that can turn around and give hope. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just briefly mentioned another example from the book. Um, I got to know a former sniper in the Royal Marines who served in Afghanistan in 2007 in Sangin, Sangin district in Helmand, which was, uh, frankly, where the uh, deployment in Afghanistan. And uh, again, he had a very, very uh, acute case or severe case of post-traumatic stress. Um, and he now runs a, an organization called Rock to Recovery. Um, and they don't deliver therapy as such, but their mantra is really mountains, music and water, um, water as in sailing or other sports. And he, he Jamie, uh, as he's called, really found that these three things, in his case, playing guitar, hiking, really went his healing. And, and, it, and they they they're able to reach out to particularly Royal Marines, but also other uh, other members of former members of the forces who are struggling and kind of bring them into their community. Uh, and I think he's someone who I mean, he's he's someone whose story is told in the book, um, but who, who displayed sort of incredible sensitivity and self-knowledge. Um, and he's able to share that with other people, which I think is is really inspiring. But, you know, I still know that he struggles. It's not to say that um, everything is is perfectly OK, but he's. And, and 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 use it to help others in a very concrete way. And, and you mentioned earlier the uh, the stigma, Matt, and and we notice it here too, of course. I mean, there's uh, both the internal stigma of the warrior. You know, I, I don't want it to be perceived as weak, or even as you had mentioned, um, the uh, I'm going to jeopardize my career. But then there's the external stigma of uh, peers and the environment and things there too. Um, you know, I've written on the uh, the paradox of the veteran's story. We want people to know our story without us having to tell our story. Um, we want people to know what we went through without actually having to explain it. Uh, and that sounds like what you're talking about there. Do you think that that's a way to reduce the stigma? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's absolutely vital. Uh, and, and in a way, if, if the book has made any contribution, I hope it's to... to to start to dissolve, gradually dissolve that stigma, uh, because it's still there. And, and I mean, a bit of British history, we go back to the First World War, uh, when there was an epidemic of shell shock on the Western Front that, that really British generals were worried could cost us the war. Um, and and sh people were being shot <laughs> for desertion at that time. Right. And, and at one point, the, the, the military authorities effectively banned or very uh, seriously restricted use of the word shell shock, uh, because they just wanted it to go away air crew who who suffered uh who were unable to carry on because of the appalling attrition rate would have lack of moral fiber scrawled on their files you know so we've had a very we've had a culture in britain where there's been a very official uh use of stigma um as as a kind of disciplinary tool and that's lodged very deeply i think in our national psyche and it's only more recently uh, that that culture started to change. And, and actually, you know, in fairness to, to the military, in 2011, campaign bottled it up, uh, which was encouraging 
people who were suffering from any sort of mental health problem or symptom to come forward. They had adverts on the British forces broadcasting in bases. Um, they had even Falklands veterans coming in to give talks. Um, so that, that culture is starting to shift. Um, but certainly a long way to go on that. And I think that's what we're also starting to see in uh, both, as you said, in our military, that the culture is starting to shift um, as a, uh, and I like how you said the institutionalism of stigma, uh, that that's being reduced, but that internal stigma is much more stubborn, uh, the stigma within each individual yeah. service member. Well, well I, I think, yeah, and I think that's something that exists across the board in society as well. I mean, look, I'm a member of the media, and, and I know that when I, I was struggling um, with my own problems, my own depression, basically, I, I kind of hit a wall where I found it very difficult. to. I couldn't work. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus. I knew I had to stop. I was actually in limbo to be kind of blanking out. But that, that was what happened. Um, I, I felt very ashamed that I had to leave what I saw as a big story and kind of step away from my day job. Uh, to recover from that uh, and you know that put pressure on colleagues and and, and obviously wasn't something I would have chosen um, so I, I don't think it's a problem that's unique to the military by any means um, um, but I think that there are some really uh, very uh, ex exciting initiatives that are making a genuine impact and I'll, I don't come across the theatre of war which performs Greek uh, plays on military bases in the US. Um, they do scenes from Sophocles' Ajax, right. yep. um, where Ajax, the great warrior, is becoming completely unglued <laughs> due to the pressures of the campaign, and particularly because he's been betrayed by his command, or feels he's been betrayed by his command, which is another huge theme, of course, which runs through, I think, a lot of the experiences of sort of moral injury that so many veterans talk about or experience is at US bases and I, I've seen uh, Brian Dorries the director lead the discussion afterwards and it's incredible how he's able to break down the barriers or the hierarchy temporarily uh, break down the barriers that the high that are normally keep the hierarchy in place in the military and let all ranks speak very clearly and just last week I saw him stage his first ever performance uh, of theater of war in a US a, U a British base uh, the two para the parachute regiment obviously one of our most elite four in the east, east of london um and he he did an amazing job um, and you could see these young officers and senior ncos were absolutely transfixed by the performance and the discussion afterwards was very frank very open and actually the commanding officer stood up and spoke about how when he came back from the last Afghanistan tour, he'd struggled, he'd been angry, he'd not known what to do with his aggression. And I thought that was a real example of leadership, because actually, you can run as many poster campaigns and TV adverts as you like. But I think, let's open up about this. That's when the real shift in the culture can really start to take place. And it was really encouraging to see that uh, in Colchester, uh, at two para, and I hope that other British bases will follow suit. And I think that the uh, the similarities of reactions, um, and not just between borders, I think I'd mentioned to you, and I know that I've said it before, that uh, trauma doesn't know nationality and combat doesn't yeah. know borders, um, but also it goes back in time. You know, we, we, we can understand what it looks like, not just, again, World War One, World War Two, our own civil war, they called it the soldier's heart, um, but all the way back again to Sophocles uh, and Achilles. Um, there was a, a book, and in, in really Jonathan Shea in the early 90s, 
um, yeah. the uh, Achilles in Vietnam, really coined yeah. that phrase and, and going back to the Greek. Um, and, and so this is, it's not a story that's uh, connected parallel, uh, but also backwards in time. Um, and and it's it's interesting to hear that you see that um, in veterans, uh, UK veterans, the same way that we see it here. Uh, is is the sense of community? Um, because I think one of the problems that we have in our in our culture, if you like, is that we tend to talk about mental health or a psychological problem as if it's a sort of defect in the individual. Um, but actually, this issue of the the the, the cycle or the the invisible wounds of war is actually a societal problem. We're all somehow connected uh, to what happens. We're all part of the society that sent our troops to go and come home as family members, as neighbours, as friends, or simply as as members of of that wider society. And I think that the sort of power of an event like theatre of war or these other kind of communal ways to come together and confront um, these personal struggles in a collective way uh, is very important and very powerful. And I think think a very simple thing that the British military could do much better, which would cost almost nothing, would actually be to say thank you when soldiers leave. You know, we're uh, initiation of our troops. Um, but I don't know what it's like in the U- U- US military, but certainly in Britain, people leave, they sort of drift off. And the last thing they hear from the army is they get a letter from the personnel office in Scotland saying, if you don't give back all your equipment in perfect condition, you're liable for prosecution. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think we could do a bit better at having a sort of ceremony. I mean, you know, that's not going to heal trauma necessarily but it certainly does something to kind of reinforce that this is a collective journey that we're on yes uh sebastian younger writes in tribe about opportunity knowledge that as well sorry i i might have lost you there but but that's something that sebastian younger writes about in tribe um is uh the indigenous native american um uh, communities would actually have a ritual for their young men coming back from war things like that and there is um the the transition as we call it the transition from military to civilian um it it happens very quickly and without a lot of fanfare for many veterans uh, u.s veterans and it sounds like it's the same Uh, i don't i don't I don't want to um, uh, take up a, a lot of time. There, there are a couple other. Say, I've, uh, I've read. Uh, so, sorry, shall I? Shall I? Sorry, I, I, I think we we broke up. I was just going to say I've read I, I've read Sebastian Junger's book Tribe, and I think I think he he hits on an absolutely critical point, which a lot of civilians struggle to understand, which is you know we can talk about um, horrific or life threatening life threatening experiences on tour. But for a lot of veterans, it's it's leaving the military that is the trauma, if you like, or it's the the, the sense of grief and loss. That brotherhood is incredibly wrenching and shattering almost um, for some of the, the veterans I met. And that's, I think, something that I certainly took a while to kind of understand, even as I was immersed in researching this. And I think I kind of as as civilians, it really behooves us to to acknowledge that because if you in Britain, you can join the army at 16, right? I mean, <laughs> you can be a soldier from the age of 16 onwards and then leave at the age of 35 or 40. I mean, that in itself is a very tough. How are you supporting that? 
Yeah, I mean, and I think that is a, a, a huge thing. Um, again, it goes back to bridging that gap. Uh, it's interesting that you identified that uh, that loss, that loss of brotherhood. Um, there's, and, and the reason why we started this podcast is there is much more to veteran mental health, um, regardless of nationality, yeah. than just PTSD or traumatic brain injury. Yes, nature. I think it's a very important point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I think that's really important because. Yeah, because we're trying to kind of, I mean, different organizations are trying to improve their support for for uh, journalists to go into conflict zones. But of course, at the same time, there's other people who suffer from depression, anxiety, addiction is a big problem, particularly drinking in the British forces. Um, and we shouldn't allow PTSD to become a sort of label that everybody almost feels they need in order to be deserving of help because these other problems affect a lot more people actually uh, I, I would say um, I mean I think there's question on these kind of problems but nonetheless the evidence does suggest that there's probably more people with um, alcohol problems or, or addic- uh, anxiety or depression which can be very debilitating as well so I think you're absolutely right Dwayne I mean we need to make sure that we we keep a, a very wide focus right. um, and, and, and support all of these different different problems. Well, I would like to touch a little bit on some of those other things. Uh, you had mentioned substance abuse again, uh, and, and whether it was uh, uh, military uh, specific. I was uh, 19 years old, uh, single. My first duty station was Mannheim, Germany. So, um, you know, I, I had my own fair share of, uh, of, of alcohol use as, at a young age, um, and it is very uh, much a part of it. I, I think in, in, uh, in your... Um, uh, in the editorial, you were talking about how Dave said that, uh, you know, a liter and a half of vodka was uh, was the way yeah. to make things change. So so what do you see as the the challenge with substance use disorders um, for us, even beyond alcohol, but opiates and methamphetamines and heroin? Yeah, I mean, I've just got, I've just got a little line about Dave. You know, he talked about how he would be self-medicating the flashback. So he'd get into this vicious cycle. He'd drink to stop the night terrors or the anxiety. Uh, and he'd say, one will always go with the other. Uh, say I've been suffering three, four, five days on the trot, no sleep, flashbacks, nightmares. I'm going crazy, just out of my mind. I'll start drinking because it will persuade me. Just have half a liter of vodka. Um, and I can't just have one. I can't just have two, three, four. It carries on and on. And we're not talking all you suffer from pouring this poison down your neck, which is killing you. Um, and he said, I'm a dead man walking. And of course, he was right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the self-medicating trauma symptoms is a huge problem because as I think as I was saying earlier, our system at the moment just isn't really geared up to provide adequate treatment for that. Um, but of course, these alcohol problems can... Um, can manifest can have a huge knock-on effect on the family as well uh, which i think is an important issue in general so finding a way to kind of address that i think is is another really pressing issue and i, I again i know that in the, the british military they are experimenting uh, with different approaches they, they've done a pilot program in wales with a kind of buddy system uh, where they're trying to kind of train one soldier in each platoon to sort of monitor his mate's intake and kind of have a quiet word if he sees somebody uh, going a bit out of control. Uh, but, you know, it's still very early days. Um, and whether we're really succeeding on that, I think, is still, it's still a bit... And I think what you're talking about there is something that we've started to notice here in the U.S. is uh, peer support 
um, is is becoming a huge uh, uh, healing factor. Um, one of yeah. my co-hosts uh, on the uh, the podcast here on the the Changer POV Podcast Network, uh, Bennett Tanton, is a certified peer support specialist for our Department of Veterans Affairs, um, and uh, and he 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 does exactly that. Um, even in the the U.S. forces, there were were trying to teach more about resilience and more about awareness. Um, I was a suicide prevention instructor that that tried to teach this is how we identify these kind of things um, it, within the service, and so that peer support thing is huge. Um, and even if nothing else, it's good to hear that it's it's getting started uh, and building traction. Uh, you mentioned though the the impact on caregivers. Uh, you'd sent me yeah. uh, a link to a show that you had produced, uh, which was very yeah. powerful, and I'll, I'll send that. Uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well, but. But we see, of course, uh, my wife and I were married for 17 or are married for 17 years. Um, and, um, and and she was with me for four out of my five deployments. And so I personally know um, the, wow. the impact on our, our, our you know, family, our marriage. But, but from your point of view, what have you seen as far as UK um, caregivers and family support? Yeah, well, I think this is the, really the untold uh, story uh, because – You'll see a fair amount of coverage now, actually, in the media of, of, of the impact uh, of psychological injury on, on the forces. But we're still only just starting, whether that's wives, partners, husbands, children as well, of course. Um, and, and this is happening uh, across the country, but largely behind closed doors. Uh, and, and we know how it often plays out. Um, particularly, say, a soldier who's suffering from trauma symptoms, whether it's flashbacks, anxiety, hypervigilance, avoidance, all of those things put a huge toll on their on their relatives. And, and so often, and, and let's just take, you know, mostly it's, it's women, the whole uh, family system can start to revolve around these symptoms. Um, and everybody's walking on eggshells and, and can't predict what's going to happen in the house from one minute to the next. Um, and that obviously places a huge strain on everybody. Um, but it's, and I think that the, the, the one factor that's, uh, that, that all of these women speak about is that sense of isolation. They feel completely alone with this. They don't know who to talk to, who to turn to, uh, or, and where to get effective help down. And I think that that's when the, um, the, 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 the veteran becomes even more vulnerable. Um, but of course, for the women who do choose to stay, um, often they have to make enormous sacrifices. A lot of them I know have given up their jobs so they can care full time for their husbands because they're actually afraid to leave them alone for fear of what they might do. Um, so, yeah, it's an absolutely huge problem that's that's really hidden. Uh, lots of reasons why it hasn't been talked about. But I hope that that program the radio program you mentioned where we actually gave what we we asked months and some of it's very harrowing uh what they what they're going through whether it's partners lashing out physically um social services getting involved worried to protect the children um and, and just that sense of fear of not knowing what's going to happen next um i think it, it, you know this is really the next phase or the next kind of big part of the problem that we really need to start addressing and again, and as I'm listening, and I'm certain that uh, as our audience is going to be listening, that we're going to be seeing so many different parallels 
um, to to what we're experiencing uh, here in the U.S. with caregivers, with the isolation, um, with uh, if yeah. if the family unit does dissolve, that leaves the veteran in a vulnerable state and the family yeah. in a vulnerable state. Um, and again, the the parallels here are amazing. Well, well yeah. really, to wrap up here, I, I, I am firmly um, a believer in uh, mental wellness, not necessarily mental illness. Uh, where's some hope? What's some, uh, what's some positive stuff, Matt? <laughs> well, I, I actually think there's a lot. Um, I mean, speaking for the UK, I, I think there is a lot of, certainly a lot of uh, public goodwill towards the military and a feeling that we should be doing more. Um, but as I traveled around the country, I did come across lots of individuals um, working either on their own or in sort of small, loose networks who are really, uh, I think, pioneering new forms of, of trauma therapy, uh, which I saw uh, having a big impact. You know, a lot of what we've done in the that can be helpful for a lot of people. Um, but I'm increasingly persuaded that working essentially with the body, with the physical aspects of trauma, acknowledging that it's not just something that's in the mind, but often something that lives on in very visceral sensations, in the kind of screw of anxiety that someone might feel turning in the gut, the chest crushing sadness, the kind of hot flash of anger that might come over them. These are physical sensations. And I think the sort of new sorts of therapies that are more that acknowledge that dimension of trauma, uh, work through breathing, uh, through visualization, um, and, and through kind of learning to really regulate the physiology um, and, and, and help fe- help trauma survivors feel that kind of internal sense of safety so they can eventually confront that traumatic material uh, and really process it and release it uh, without being re-traumatized. I think that that kind of wave of therapy, that new paradigm is very promising um, and it is it is starting to catch. So if we can just start to kind of scale some of this great work, I, I think we could be offering a lot more hope um, to the many people who really, frankly, have been failed uh, by the current system and almost blamed. They've almost labeled treatment resistant sure. um, as if it's their fault rather than the fault of the, the system that's, that can't help them. So we need to stop scapegoating the veterans and actually really open our minds up to these new new paradigms in therapy that I think um, are, are very uh, have a lot of and, and I agree. I, I absolutely do believe in the fact that it is a mind-body connection. It's, a, it's pretty interesting that uh, uh, Bessel yeah. van der Kolk was one of the, uh, uh, the, the pioneers that identified and got PTSD really in the early 80s, um, that he is very much uh, focused on the, uh, uh, you know, the body keeping the score and the, you know, the, the embodied uh, trauma. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, yeah. uh, and we're seeing a lot of the same thing here in the U.S., um, yeah. I, I also do believe that uh, traditional therapies, uh, in adjuncti- uh, in uh, in conjunction with a lot of these, uh, and not even alternative therapies, um, but things that are becoming more mainstream. And, and yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think that it would be great. So before we we end here, Matt, I, I want to give you the opportunity to um, to identify, uh, you know, how people can reach out to you. Maybe your website where they could find your book yeah. and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So. So obviously my, my book is called Aftershock, um, uh, The Untold Story of Surviving Peace. And obviously it's available on Amazon or, or on Kindle. Uh, so you can get it in the U.S., uh, which is I think the lessons that it le- uh, the, the sort of lessons that I, I've distilled really apply across the standing of 
has evolved and I explore some of the neurobiology of trauma and this new paradigm that we've been talking about. So I hope that's a resource uh, for veterans uh, all over the world, really. Um, and I also have a blog. Uh, it's at www.matthewgreenjournalism.com, uh, which I use to explore, again, new horizons in trauma therapy um, and, and some of the journalism that I continue to write on this topic. And I have a mailing list as well. People are very welcome to sign up. Uh, and I, but I love to hear from, from readers or people who are interested, uh, who've got maybe stories to tell. So I'd really be grateful if anyone wants to get in touch. I'm, I'm always looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's a lot of great stuff. I am going to uh, make sure that all that is in the show notes, which can be found on uh, the Change Your POV Podcast Network um, website, as well as on my blog, the Veteran Mental Health blog. And, and I'll make sure that we get all those links um, in so that uh, anybody who might want to find more about what you're doing uh, can, uh, can, can find you. So do, uh, any last thoughts that you might have, Matt? Well, I, I'd say... It's been a real privilege to have the opportunity to sort of speak in a transatlantic way and, and reach out to veterans in the US. And I just say, again, it, it's the same message, isn't it? it? I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening to this, whether they're veterans who are struggling uh, or family members who are trying to gain some insight. Um, but as always, it's the message. It's tough. I know. And I, I've seen how tough it is. Also, remarkable turnarounds. Uh, even after many years, it's amazing what kind of healing can be available. So just keep going and keep tuning into this show. Um, and I, I, I wish everyone listening well with that journey. Okay, thank you very much, Matthew Green, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks. Looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.